All right, if you have your Bible, let's turn to uh, one last time, Matthew chapter 6. We are concluding our series on the power of praying church, which has been based upon uh, the model prayer that Jesus gave to us uh, as he gave to his disciples when they asked him, uh, Lord, teach us, teach us how to pray. And so Jesus uh, launched into this prayer, and most people are very familiar with the Lord's Prayer. It's quoted many, many times in scenarios and situations. But sometimes we, we just limit that prayer to the, the words that Jesus gave, like, okay, I'm just to recite these words. Jesus wasn't giving us something to recite. He was giving us a pattern for prayer. And the whole uh, basis of this series has been that we don't want to reduce prayer down to just giving God a list, uh, you know, our grocery list of prayer requests in Jesus' name. Now take care of that, Father, and I'll check in on you once in a while to see how you're doing. That's really not what prayer is about. Prayer is to be not uh, grocery list-based, but it is to be worship-based. And so it's obvious that if you look at the life of Jesus all throughout the New Testament, he spent a great deal of time in prayer. You'll see where he would often withdraw in the morning to pray, uh, sometimes in the afternoon, multiple times, sometimes in the evening, sometimes he'd be praying all night long when he was making like major decisions, for example, calling his, his disciples to follow him. So Jesus, uh, if, who is the Son of God, who is God in the flesh, if he saw the need and the importance of prayer in such a manner, how much more should we obviously uh, look to prayer as God seeks to fulfill his plan and purpose here on earth as it is in heaven? And so he's given us the means by which we become channels of God's power. We, we pray and we are literally releasing the power of the Holy Spirit upon the objects of God's concern. And so God often burdens your heart about something and asks you to pray for it. And as you're praying, God is releasing, he's releasing his resources from heaven to earth in order to accomplish his divine will and plan. And so as we begin this prayer, our Father who art in heaven, uh, it, is to, it is a time of just stepping back and saying, who is this God I'm praying for? Because how you view God greatly um, determines what you feel like God's going to do. Like, if you see God as nothing but an angry judge, then that's certainly going to um, have an effect upon how you pray and what your expectations. If you see him as a distant father who's, like, never there uh, or won't be there when you have him, you know, have a need, so it's going to affect the way you pray. So Jesus wants us to spend time in worship with the Father so that we begin to correct our lenses, that we get an adequate view of God. Right? And so like if you wear glasses, you have corrective lenses trying to correct your eyesight. Well, that's kind of what Jesus is saying. Let's pause. Before we dump off our grocery list, why don't we pause and just engage with this person, this God, this Father that God has revealed himself as in a very deep, personal, intimate way. And he said, hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. I'm going to exalt your name because the names of God reveal who God is. The names of God reveal what God does. We have the names of God, uh, some Hebrew names on our walls because those names reveal who God is, what he does, and what he's capable of doing. And so it begins to change our perspective about prayer. And then he goes on and says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a prayer of surrender. This is a prayer of offering myself before my heavenly father surrendering to his will because I believe that God's plan for my life, that God's plan for your life is the best plan possible. God really only wants the best for you. But if I view God as this angry, you know, judge who's up there in heaven who's just trying to squelch my fun and just waiting for me to do something wrong so he can, you know, hammer me, then that's going to distort that view, right? You're never going to believe that God really wants the best for your life. You're just going to feel like, oh, I just can't ever measure up to him. I, I never reach the standard, and when I think I'm there, he just pushes it up higher. That's not the Father at all. And so God does have a plan for your life. He wants you to live in that plan because it's the best plan that you could possibly walk in. And then he says, um, he moves on in that prayer and says, give us this day our daily bread because we are dependent upon God. It's a prayer of dependency. It's a prayer of, you know, I, I need God for every resource in my life. God is the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. And therefore, I acknowledge that my heavenly father 
really does want to provide for my needs, the minute needs, even to the, the greatest of needs that we may have. And then he, he went into teaching us about, you know, dealing with the four heart issues and the latter two um, things of uh, avenues of prayer that Jesus talked about. And we spent some time on this and that you and I all have a heart issue, right? So we try to deal with the surface issues around us, why we do the things we do, why we say the things we say, why people act the way they do, but really they're heart issues. The issue of guilt, guilt says I owe you, I owe you an apology, or I owe you money, or I owe you, you know, a childhood. Uh, and then there's anger, anger says you owe me uh, because you've hurt me, you've done something that's, that's harmed me, or you know, you've slandered me, or whatever it might have been. There's greed, I owe myself. And so greed, when you, 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 it pushes your life, you know, the motto is enough is never enough. I never get enough. I never have enough. I'm always trying to push things forward and ratcheting things up for my own selfish purposes and desires. And then there is jealousy. And jealousy says God owes me because uh, we think we're jealous about other people and what they have and what we don't have. But the fact of the matter is, if God is God, uh, he could have made us like them or given us the things they have or you know, given us the, the promotion rather than the other person, and therefore we really become dissatisfied with God. And so Jesus, when he says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, because all of those owing is a debt-to-debtor relationship. Something is owed. And if something is owed, only one of two things can alleviate what is owed. Either somebody has to pay the bill, make the payment, or somebody has to forgive what is owed. All right, so that's exactly what God did for us through Christ. We owed this massive debt to God, a debt of sin. We owed to God we could not pay, had no means of paying, and certainly couldn't pay. And so Jesus stepped in our place. This is the essence of the gospel. He stood in our place, and he says, I will make the payment for you on behalf of my heavenly Father. And now I'm canceling the debt. You are free from that payment. And so that is, that is the good news, the beauty of the gospel. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So last week we talked about the issue of temptation and why it's so important that you understand that temptation is more than just one decision. There is a rollout, there is a fallout of the decisions we may make while being tempted. There's always more at stake. There is your um, future, your family, and your faith are all at stake when you start yielding to temptation, because there is the rippling effect. What you and I do never stays isolated just to us. And one of the reasons why Jesus uses plural pronouns in this prayer, as the Bible does when it speaks of the church anyways, is because we are a community of believers who are knit together through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what I do affects you, what you do affects me, what we all do affects one another. And so, for example, if I allow greed to rule my heart and I say, well, you know what? I just want to keep ratcheting up my lifestyle and I'm going to rob from God in order to pay for it, right? So I'm not going to give God what is his. I'm not giving the first fruit out of my income. Uh, I'm not giving him what's rightfully his, what he's asked for, because I want to ratchet up my lifestyle. Now, me robbing from God is not just going to affect me or your walk with God, it's going to affect the entire church, right? So our income starts going down, income goes down, we can't support ministries that we once supported, and so then there's that downward trend can lead to a lot of, uh, a lot of decisions, the hard decisions that have to be made. So tonight, today, I want to talk about the very last section of this. If you have an NIV or some other translations, uh, other than King James or New King James, and there's some other translations, they kind of drop this off. It's on your outline. Because Jesus really ended this prayer for, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And so what this does is, at the end of this prayer, is that Jesus is unveiling, revealing the dream of God. What's God's dream for the world in which we live? What is this, the ultimate outcome of where all, all of history is heading? It is his dream that we would be co-laboring with him in uh, the fulfillment of this dream as he adds his wisdom and his power to our prayers and that we follow him in, in, in obedience. And so the assignment that Jesus gave to us 
is the same assignment he gave his disciples. He's not changed it. He's not altered it. In Matthew 28, he says, all authority of heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, you know, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I have, that I have taught you. So this is the assignment for every single one of us. That's not just my assignment. It's your assignment. It's every follower of Christ. It's our assignment to be engaged as co-laborers with Jesus in fulfilling this commission. Jesus said himself in John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, I am now sending you. I'm sending you to co-labor in the power of the Holy Spirit in order to fulfill the dream that God has for humanity. And really, it is just a continuation of God's original commission for mankind that's found all the way back in the Garden of Eden. When God created Adam and Eve in his image, it says in Genesis 1.28 that he told them to do some things. He says, be fruitful, that is, lead productive lives, um, you know, multiply. They're going to have children, and they're going to multiply, and uh, fill the earth, and subdue it. Now, that word subdue means to conquer it. You'll recall that God put the Garden of Eden right in the backyard of Satan, right? So you have an evil force that's outside of the garden who comes in tempting Adam and Eve in the form of a serpent, and so Satan is invading that, that territory. God's original plan was that Adam and Eve would have children. They would follow the Lord as he came into the garden. He walked with them. He talked with them. And they would oversee his creation. They were stewards. He gave them the authority, the ability, the dominion in order to oversee his creation. And that the Garden of Eden would just continue to expand until it made its way all the way around the world. That was God's original intent for Adam and Eve. But as you know, uh, they sinned. They gave up that right uh, to dominion and authority that was handed now over into the hands of Satan, which is why Jesus came into the world to get it back. That's why he says, all authority, all dominion has been handed over to me, has been given back to me. Now, I'm giving it to the church so that we can also uh, not just populate the earth by having children, but having spiritual children, by sharing the good news of Jesus with people all across this globe so that they may have opportunity to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and thus enter into God's family, become citizens of God's kingdom, and the means by which God's going to do that is through the co-laboring of his people alongside of him. And prayer is one of the key avenues by which all of this unfolds because God does little to nothing apart from prayer. That's how he releases his resources from heaven down to earth. And so in the disciples' prayer, we find that God still longs for his world to influence the one and shape the one that, in which we live in. So that's why when he says, on earth as it is in heaven, with go into all the world, the heart of God has not changed regarding his assignment. And so God has given every single one of you gifts and talents and abilities and passions and callings for the same commission, right? He told the disciples to teach their converts to do all that Jesus taught them, and Jesus had taught them a great deal. And so the essence of the gospel that we take to the world, which is why we have missionaries we're supporting around the world, is taking the essence of the gospel because the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to save and the power to heal and the power to deliver. And so God has not altered that calling. He's not altered that assignment. It is up to us to fulfill it as we co-labor with him. God never gives us a prayer to pray if he doesn't intend to answer the prayer. All right, why would God burden my heart to pray for something that he has no intention of answering? God burdens my heart to pray for something because he has every intention of answering that prayer. And that's why I believe Jesus gave this model prayer to his disciples and said, listen, guys, there is no plan B. We're going back to plan A. All authority and power has been given to me again. I'm giving it to you. I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom, and we're going to build the church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So long as we co-labor together, we're going to make this thing work. I mean, think about what was placed into the hands of these disciples. I mean, uh, these are just a few individuals. That's like 120 people who gather in the upper room 
after Jesus ascends back into heaven. And they've been given the task in the midst of the Roman Empire, which was one of the most corrupt, ruthless. I mean, you think things in America are bad or things in other countries around the world are bad? That was like Disney World compared to the Roman Empire. It was, it was cutthroat. It was ruthless. It was, it was, morality was horrendous. And here's a band of, small band of people who's going to turn this world upside down. And that was their assignment. And they're like, Ain't no way. Ain't no, no way. And so Jesus told them to go in the upper room and wait for what? The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who would empower them to do the impossible. And so when you read the book of Acts, we spent a whole year, in the, almost half a year in the book of Acts going through that. You noted how much time the early church spent in prayer and how the Holy Spirit was released through them in order to bring to bear the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's God's dream. It's never changed, is that the whole earth would be filled with the manifest presence of Jesus. We've been called to shine and to be salt and light in our culture to bring to bear the manifest presence of Jesus. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a casual Christian. I don't want to come to the end of my life and say, well, you know, Lord, I gave it my best. You know, I, I tried half-heartedly. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I gave you a little bit of my time. I, I gave you a little bit of my talents and my possessions. Uh, Lord, I, you know, I kind of went through the motions, but God, I survived, and I get to go to heaven. Isn't that wonderful? I, I don't want to stand before my Savior with that kind of testimony or half-heartedness. I don't want to give Jesus the leftovers of my life. I want to give him the first and the best, and I believe you do too. So how do we honor God? Because this is really what the crux of this message is really all about. How do we honor God with our lives? There are three words that Jesus gave us in this final sentence of this prayer that really tell us exactly what it needs to happen if we're going to honor God with our lives. If I'm going to stand before Jesus, which all of us are, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. You will give an account for your life. And so if you want to have a life that has honored him, it's got to be built around these three principles or these three components. And it's built around the words, and you can circle these on your outline, kingdom, power, and glory. Kingdom, power, and glory. The word honor means to value something, to see something as precious, as weighty, as gold, something that is highly esteemed. So Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 says, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. The barns represents what? Your storage place. He says, so that your your barns will be filled. You know, your storage place can be a closet, a checkbook, a gas tank, um, a garage. A vat is a container that is used to store this, this, this wine. Now, notice that it cannot contain the blessing of God, that it is overflowing. Like, if I honor God with my possessions, the first fruits, in other words, I'm giving God my best, my, the first of my life, the best of my life, not the leftovers, he says my barns are going to be filled with plenty, and my vats are going to be like overflowing. Like you can't contain the overflow with what? New wine. What does the new wine represent? Well, the new wine in the Bible usually represents a fresh presence of the Holy Spirit. And so what we learn here all the way back in the book of Proverbs from Solomon and what is really fleshed out in the New Testament is that when I bring the first, the best of my possessions and my time and my talents, and I I, I give God what is best. I, I am releasing the fresh presence of the Holy Spirit into the atmosphere in which I find myself. So, for example, if, if I'm all worried about something, let's say worry hits me and I've had a downturn in something in my life and, and I'm worried about something. And so uh, I, I, wanna, I still want to be faithful to God and I want to give him the best of my life and the first fruits and I come into his presence. And so we have an antidote for right, that, right? So Philippians chapter 4 says, do not be anxious about anything, but everything by what? Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, 
Let your request be known to God, and then the peace of Christ that surpasses all human understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So I come into the God's presence, and I'm praying, and I'm thanking him, and, and God's working in this, and, and so God's moving, and he says, man, I'm, I'm going to start overflowing your, your vat. The presence of the Holy Spirit is going to come in here in, in the person of peace, right? He's going to bring peace. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Peace. And so peace just starts to overflowing my life, even though I'm in a bad situation and I don't see a way out and peace is overflowing my life. And so then when I come into the presence of somebody else, when I come into a room, when I come into your presence, then I've got this presence of the Holy Spirit that's overflowing. So literally, I come into the presence of the atmosphere and I begin changing the atmosphere because the Holy Spirit is overflowing. That's that is what Jesus is trying to get us to see. Changes people. Changes you. Changes your life. Changes your outlook. History is all about his story. And it's, history is moving the way that God wants it to move, whether we like it or not. He has an ultimate outcome. We have it in the Bible. It's not going to be a surprise. He says this is all how it's all going to come to climax, how it's all going to end, how it's all going to turn out. And there's absolutely nothing that will stop God from seeing that through. So, whatever time in, you have in this world, however many years that is, God doesn't guarantee you to live to be 100 or 80 or 60 or 50. Whatever time you have, I don't know about you, but I just want to know that I gave Jesus my best, that I honored him the best I could. Now, do I always get it right? Absolutely not. There have been times I've so dishonored the Lord, I ashamed myself. But that's the desire of my heart. I hope it's the desire of your heart. We don't always get it right. Remember, it's never about perfection. It's always about making progress. Sometimes we take three steps forward and two back and three forward and five back and, you know, and then six forward. And, you know, spiritual growth is never like, it's always like, eh, 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 eh all over the map. These are what I call the dips. You know, like you're on spiritual high and then you hit this dip and God's testing your faith and he's reforming your character. And, and so, you know, there's things you should do while you're in the dip and then he brings you back, at, back out of it and then he takes you back in it. This is kind of the, the flow, the ebb and flow of, the, of our walk with the Lord. So let's look at what are the three things that we can do to honor the Lord. Number one is we honor God by seeking his kingdom, by seeking his kingdom. It means you make God's agenda your agenda. You make God's plans your plans, right? If you ever want to make God laugh, just tell him about your plan. Like, <laughs> you're so funny. I just tell God my plans all the time, right? I had grandiose plans. You know what God did? He interrupted them big time, right? So I was a commercial pipe fitter, and, and uh, you know, I was uh, <clears throat> being groomed as, a, you know, as an engineer, and going to be a superintendent. This is what my dad does for a living, commercial construction. And I was being groomed to, you know, to one day take his place or, or to at least be another superintendent. It was a large company, and so there'd be like 10, 15 jobs that were going on and uh, around different areas of the country. And so I was being groomed, and I had all my plans, right? I had all planned out. Uh, this is how my life was going to go. And my wife and I just, you know, had gotten married and how many kids we were going to have and what kind of house we were going to buy and what we were going to do. We had all these plans, and all of a sudden, God just, like, interrupted my plans and said, eh, uh, no, I'm wanting you to go into ministry. Really? Yes, quit your job. Go to college. Go to graduate school. Go to postgraduate school. Spend half your life in school. And then, by the way, uh, your income's going to be, like, cut, like, way way, way, way down. And so I had a choice to make, right? So God's issued this call upon my life. I want to give God my best. I wanted to give him the first fruits. And so I responded to the call, quit my job. As you know, my, my testimony, my dad was very upset over that. He was not a believer. He could not understand why I was giving up this lucrative career and uh, would do such a foolish thing and tried to talk me out of it and, and so on and so forth. It put a rift in our relationship. For, for quite a long time, and so, you know, I quit my job. Now I'm working in a grocery store for a butcher and going to school full-time. And so, but, you know, God was always faithful in all of that. So I, I was trying to seek God's kingdom, and I was making God's will, you know, for my life. I, I wanted his will to be my will, so I just stopped 
praying, God, I want you to bless what I'm doing. I just started praying, God, I, I want to see what you're blessing. I just want to be in on that. Like, show me where you're at work and let me in, engage in that. Let me co-labor with you and where it is that you're working. And so this is hard to do sometimes. I understand that. There's pressures in life. There's financial pressures. There's relational pressures and issues in our lives and career decisions. But Jesus said it this way, Matthew um, 6.33 but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus said, you don't have to spend all your time and energy worrying about these things, and here's why. Because usually we care about everything else except what God really cares about, right? We get all worried and ramped up over the things that God really has no concern over because he knows he can supply those things. And so Jesus says, you don't have to worry, and he went on to spell out, if you read the whole no verse in his context, he says, you don't need to worry about your health, your happiness, your security, your future, your relationships, or your job. If you will seek first my kingdom, I will make sure that all these things are supplied. I will make sure all these things fit into the plan that I have for your life. Now, let's just take relationship for a minute. Because sometimes you think about that, and you say, well, you know, I, I've been seeking God's kingdom, but my relationship right now with my wife or my husband stinks. And, uh, you know, so here I was in school, in college, fourth year, uh, I was a psychology major, and, you know, I'm getting ready for finals, and my wife and I, we are not getting along. And she kind of resenting the fact that God has called me into ministry, she had some criteria when we got married. Uh, she told God, here you go, again with her plans, she said, Lord, I want to marry somebody who is tall, handsome, and doesn't travel. She got somebody short, ordinary and has never stopped traveling, right? So, uh, except for the 20 years that I've been here. But, so she resented the fact. She did not, oh, the other one was, can't be a pastor, right? She, she'd been through the wars that happened in church, business meetings and things. She wanted no part of that. And so then God calls me to be a pastor. So her plans got blown out of the water. And so we're having this relationship rift, and she's not really sure that she wants to stay in the marriage. Here I am preparing for ministry. And uh, I get that. I understand that. But you know what? I just kept seeking after the Lord, after his kingdom, after his heart. Long story short, you know, God spoke to her heart. God spoke to my heart. And, you know, we, we worked things out. You know, God, God gave her a word. He gave me a word. And here we are, you know, 42 years later, we're still married. Happily married. Okay. So he says, Here's my equation for this. Whenever I want God to bless my life, I have to put him first in that area of my life. If, if I want God to bless an area of my life, I've got to put him first in that area of my life. So I give you a little acrostic of the word first that just kind of gives you some places where you can. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, uh, but certainly it gives you a primer. The first area is in the area of finances, right? We're to put God first in our finances, the first fruits. It's always very important to God. Remember that Jesus is God's first fruit to us, right? He is God's best. He says, I'm not giving you my leftovers. I'm giving you my best, my son, my only begotten son, in order that you might have life and have it everlasting. And so when you, people ask, well, what is the first fruit? The first fruit is the tithe, the 10%. God has given me and you 100% of everything that we own, everything that we possess, God has given to us. And he's asked us to give back to him the first fruit, the tithe. But right now, the average Christian gives 2.1% of their income back to God as way of what they call a tithe. That's not a tithe. It's called disobedience. Right? An offering is a, what is given above the tithe, uh, above and beyond. And so the Bible talks a lot about, and when people get into wars like, well, uh, you know, uh, and, and I used to make, trust me, I made all the same excuses because I, when Marlon and I first got married, I was a new, pre, pretty new Christian. I struggled with tithing. I struggled with giving. I, I didn't want to do it. You know, I would give God a tip. And it's amazing. We go in and give a waitress a 20% tip, but we want to give God 2.1% tip. And so uh, I, I, we struggled, I and mean, this became a source of contention because she grew up in a Christian home. They tithed, and that was just a part of their lifestyle. 
And so it was a no-brainer for her. It was very, very difficult for me until God got a hold of my heart and began doing a work within me. And so, uh, yeah, we began to take that step of faith. And I'm, I'm telling you, I, I can tell you story after story after story how God has overflowed our vats as a result of putting him first as first fruits. Now, listen to me very carefully. We didn't always have a lot of money, but we honored the tithe. Right? When we were in college, when we were in graduate school, postgraduate school, when I was pastoring for many years, uh, I, didn't, I, you know, I was paycheck to paycheck. I, I didn't make a ton of money, but always faithful. Now that God has blessed us you know, in, in many different ways, we move that. You know, the tithe is not the ceiling, it's, it's the floor. Right? You can go beyond that, and we've done that. We ratcheted up every, almost every year a percentage because we not only give to the church, we support other organizations and people out in ministry. I'm just saying that not just to say, listen, I, I've, done, I've been there. I've, I've struggled with the things that you struggle with. It, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't compute. Uh, there's not enough money to go around. I understand that. But listen, God has a different kind of calculator than you've got. And it's amazing what he'll do. Um, so you have to choose where you're going to live for the dot or the line in life. So the dot is the space of time we have here on earth. The line is from that space to eternity, right? So am I going to live for now or for eternity? If I choose to live for now, I'll choose to live out of a heart of greed. If I choose to live for eternity, I'll live out through a heart of graciousness, generosity, because that's exactly why God has asked us to give, is to root out of us greed and to build into us a heart of generosity. God blesses us so that we may be a blessing to others. That's exactly what he told Abraham, and he's not changed his mind on that one iota. Here's the I is for in the area of your interest, um, maybe your career, hobby, friendships, re recreation. You know, God needs to be first. I mean, uh, you're passionate about those things, and that's great. I mean, we all need some interest and passions and careers or, or hobbies and friendships. We just want to make sure we keep God first in those things. Relationships is the R. What's marriage, dating, family, business? Honor God, trust him first. S is for schedule. Now, here, here's the bait of Satan, right? Keeping you so busy, you have no time for God. We run into us all the time. We ask people all the time, well, how's your, how are things going in life? Well, oh, it's going, I'm just so busy. We're just so busy. We're just so busy. And so we have so overloaded ourselves and our schedules that God carefully gets scheduled out of being first. Right? If God's going to be first in my schedule, that means he's the first fruit of my day. He's the first person I want to meet with in my day. I don't care if you just say, you know, you pray before you get out of bed. At least you're making a go at it, right? And he's to be the first part of my week. That's why we celebrate on Sunday. It's Resurrection Sunday, the first day of the week. We want to give God the first fruit. So we come, we worship on the first day of the week because we want to make sure that God isn't scheduled out of our lives. And then T is for troubles. You know, even in your troubles, when problems hit your life, immediately go to God first, not your spouse, friend, or your parent. Not, um, you know, overeating because that's, the, that your, that's your coping mechanism or whatever your coping mechanism is. When you get all, you know, you, know you're, you're in, you just feel the tension inside of you and things aren't working out well. Uh, no, you turn to your heavenly father. Make that the first. Make prayer your first choice, not your last resort. Let God work it out from there. Right? So God may have you go to somebody. You may need somebody to come alongside of you. That's not the... I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying you always start with God. Start, that's your starting point, and then you work from there. All right, so here's the second thing we have to do if we're going to honor the Lord with our lives is we honor God by depending on his power, by depending on his power. God blesses when we choose to depend on his power and his strength. Otherwise, what we try to do is become self-reliant people. You know what self-reliance is? Practical atheism. I believe in God, but I can't trust him. I can't rely upon him. I must do this myself. So I told you last week, the trifecta of false savior is uh, uh, comfort, control, and the approval of others. Right? Satan will use all three of those mechanisms against you uh, because he, does, he wants you to become more of a self-reliant person rather than a God-dependent individual. 
but yet God created us to be dependent upon him. Right? You need the power source of the Holy Spirit operating through you. It's like having a refrigerator not plugged in. Nothing's going to happen until you plug it into the power, right? So when you plug into the power, all of a sudden everything comes alive. Well, the same thing is with, with you. You've got to plug into the power of the Holy Spirit in your life if you're going to, if you're going to live out the effects of that. God doesn't bless self-sufficient people. He does bless and honor those who depend upon his strength and power. And that always requires faith. Faith. You got to trust him. Remember, this relationship you have with God is a faith walk. And so uh, part of our mission statement is that we want to help people take their next step with God. right? Because that next step is going to be a faith step. We want to help them take that journey and make that step in their lives. And so uh, Isaiah uh, tells us that uh, even youths will become uh, weak and tired, and young men will fall in exhaustion, but those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high like on the wings of eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will not walk and not faint. You know what walking means? Walking means is like you're in bed, and you're so depressed. You don't want to get out of bed. You don't want to go to work. You don't want to do life. You don't want to do people. And it's all you can do to even get yourself out of that bed for the day. That's what it means by walk, right? So how am I going to get myself out of that emotional funk? Am I going to do it by willpower? Am I going to do it by, you know, binge-watching Netflix? Am I going to do it by, you know, binge-watching whatever or shopping or whatever my coping mechanism might be? Probably not. It may, it may push it down and away for a while, but you've not really gotten to the root cause of the depression. This is where the Holy Spirit comes into play. This is where the Spirit of God can take us and say, listen, these are the lies that you're believing, and your thoughts are affecting your emotions, which is affecting your, your uh, actions. If we're going to change your actions and your emotions, we got to change the way you're thinking. we got to root out the lies and put in the truth. So this is how God operates through the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to depend upon that power because a part of the gospel is also not just to save us from our sins, but to heal us and to free us up to walk in the freedom of Jesus Christ, right? So healing is not just limited to physical healing. Healing also is the healing of the soul because your soul has been so ravaged and damaged by sin. Unless God starts rooting that stuff out of us, that sin, the flesh, will dominate our lives and will walk all bound up and bound in guilt and shame and self-condemnation and fear will characterize our relationship rather than walking in love and graciousness, and kindness, and the freedom of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is going to be a faith walk, right? So i, I got to trust my Heavenly Father. I've got to depend upon His power. So how can I express my faith in God? Well, number one is by taking risks to grow and to obey God, right? you got to take risks. Now, we don't like that word risks. We like lazy boy. We don't want, we don't want to sit in a risky boy. I want to sit in a lazy boy because I just want to sit back and, you know, veg and do whatever, right? So risk means that I've got to, you know, we are willing to do comfortable things. We're willing to do safe things. We're willing to stay within the context of our comfort zone. Just don't ask us to move outside that comfort zone. Can I tell you, if you're going to walk with Jesus, he's going to be constantly pushing you outside that comfort zone box. He's going to constantly be pushing back the parameters of that box because you cannot go where God wants you to go and stay comfortable in your little comfort zone box. It won't happen. Uh, you'll, just, you'll, just be, you'll just stagnate, and you know what happens when you stagnate long enough? You get bored. That I believe that most of the, that met many in the church today, the reason why the American church is on the decline is because we're just bored with Jesus. We're just absolutely bored out of our minds because we don't want to step outside of our comfort zone. We don't want to risk for the Lord. We just want to kind of integrate in with culture, you know, just go along to get along or, or we want to isolate ourselves away from culture. We don't want any, you know, out of fears like, oh, we don't want them to touch us and contaminate us. 
And, and yet Jesus has called us to live a life of love that moves us outside of the box into the lives of people. Because if we're going to pe- reach the people whom Jesus came to die for, we have got to get engaged in their lives. And let me tell you, every single human being has a messy life. Look at your neighbor. That includes you, and it includes me. When God got a hold of me, I was a heap of mess, and I'm still pretty messy. Just ask my wife. And so it's like with Peter. If you want to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat, right? When Jesus asked, you know, Peter says, hey, Lord, may I come out? Jesus says, come on out, Peter. Well, as long as Peter had one foot in the water and one foot in the boat, that was not faith. That's not risk. I could have done that. It wasn't until he put the second foot in the water that he stepped outside of his comfort zone. And when he did that, what is it that invaded the life of Peter? the supernatural power of God to hold him up on the water. If God's calling you to put both feet in the water and you're not sure how it's going to work out and you're not sure how it's all going to play out, I'm telling you, God will hold you up as long as you're depending upon his power. When God told me to quit my job and my whole future, my whole career, and go out into ministry, which I had no idea about, because I wasn't raised in a Christian church. I didn't know what all that was really all about, what it was all going to entail. I just know God called me and made that step and put both feet in the water. I had no idea what my future was going to look like, how I was going to make a living, how I was going to provide, how I was going to pay for school, how I was going to do any of that. But God was always faithful to provide as long as we were walking in dependence upon his his power. And so maybe the first step of faith you need to take this morning is to risk and take a step of faith and enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ because you really don't have one. Right? You, you, you just never made that step. You've never taken that step of faith. Maybe that's your first step. Maybe your first step is of risk is to be baptized. You, you know, you received Christ, but you've never followed through in public baptism. You've never made that public statement of faith. Or maybe it's for you to get involved in, you know, a, a small group. Maybe it's you to get involved in ministry. Maybe your step of faith is simply to take a door hanger or a packet of them and to blitz your neighborhood. That's your step of faith. And for some people that might think, well, that's not much of a step of faith. But for you, it might be a huge step of faith because you've never done anything like that. I don't know what it is for you, but I can assure you, if you ask God what it is, he'll tell you what it is. He will guide and direct you as the step of faith you need to take because when you take that small step of faith and God is faithful to supply all that is needed, what happens is when you come into that position of surrender is that God begins to mature you and deepen your faith and deepen your trust so that he can begin pushing back a little bit further those boundaries of comfort in order to walk with the Lord. Number two is by not giving up when you're discouraged or afraid. We all know that how unpredictable life can be. And it's not easy to trust God during those moments. Life seldom works out the way we plan it. Amen? Yeah, we have our plans, and then life happens. And so we need faith. And you never have to depend upon, and if you never needed faith, you never have to depend upon the Lord. But in order to grow in faith, guess what God's going to do? He's going to test it. This is what the whole thing of James 1, 2 through 4 was all about. Consider pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you enter into various trials. And the reason why you're considering it joy is because God's at work in the midst of those trials. What is God doing? God is testing my faith. He's forging my faith. He's strengthening my faith. He's pushing the boundaries of, uh, you know, stretching my boundaries of comfort and he's moving me in a direction that he wants my life to go because God has a wonderful, incredible plan for your life. But if I never move outside of my self-imposed limitations, I will never experience what it is God had for me. And so when you step out, I can assure you there's just going to be difficulties, there's going to be delays, there's going to be dead ends, uh, there's going to be all kinds of things that are going to come against you. Just don't give up, right? Never, ever, ever give up when you're discouraged in the midst of fear. You hang on. God will bless you, mature your faith so that you can trust him in greater ways in the future. Here's the third thing is we want to honor God. We have to, um, we honor God by living for his glory, living for his glory. 
God's glory is the present reason for everything. Romans eleven thirty six says, everything comes from God alone. Everything lives by his power and everything for his glory. People all the time say to me, you know what, pastor, I just feel unfulfilled in life. Man, you know, I've got the job, I've got my family, I've got my kids, and Lord, I've, you know, I've accomplished a lot of things in my life, but I still just feel unfulfilled. I was like, there's something missing, there's, there's something not quite right, there's something not happening, and I, I just can't put my finger on it. And I can assure you that one of the reasons why we're not fulfilled is because you were made for more than success in the secular market. Now, there's nothing wrong with success. If God blesses you and makes you successful, that's a great and wonderful thing. But if you're looking for that to be your fulfillment in life, if you're looking for temporary to fulfill what is eternal, it will never happen. God wants you to find your fulfillment in your identity in Christ. You will never be satisfied living for yourself. You will never begin to find fulfillment in life until you begin to seek God's kingdom, depend upon God's power, and live for God's glory. That's where you're going to find it. And so you're going to have to decide who's going to take credit for your life, you or God. So how can I live for God's glory? Two things. There's a lot of things I could say, but there's two things, and as I'm wrapping this up. Number one is by using my abilities, by using my abilities, gifts, whatever, to to help other believers, right? 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11 tells us that God has given you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. So use them well to serve one another. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. And so every time you use your talents, abilities, your stuff, in order to help somebody else, you're bringing honor and glory to somebody else, to to the Lord, right? So remember when Jesus said to his disciples, uh, he had a conversation going on, and he said, uh, you know, when you, you know, brought me bread and water, you, you, you did it, you did it for the least of these, you've done it for me. So God, again, blesses us so that we can channel those blessings into the lives of others. Listen, you need my gift in this. I need your gift in this. I have great abilities in certain areas of my life. There are other areas I have none. I need your abilities. I need your gifts. That's why it's called the body of Christ. That's why a body is interconnected and dependent upon one. What would happen to you if your heart said, I don't want to be a heart anymore. I don't want to pump anymore. Right? You die. Right? So the reason why Paul used the analogy of the body is because we're all so interconnected with each other as God has pulled together our gifts, talents, abilities, and resources for the purpose of co-laboring with him to take the gospel of Jesus Christ into the world around us, into our families, into our neighborhoods, into our workplace, into our schools, in our communities, across our country, and around the world. And so that is a part of ministry. The more you bless others, the more God will bless you in return. You are blessed to be a blessing. And so when you bless others, help others, that's called ministry. When you bless and help others outside the walls of the church, that's called your mission. That's the distinction, right? That is your mission, which brings me to the second point. You know, love is a verb. It is characterized by action. It's not by words alone. I can tell somebody all day long I love them. I can tell my wife every single day of her life that I love her. But if I never show any loving actions toward her, you think she's going to start questioning that after a while? Like, nah, I'm not so sure. Right? So we can tell people about the love of God. We can share the love of Jesus. We can do all those things. But if they don't see that th- being lived through us, they're going to question the authenticity of our message. And so here's the second way that we live for God's glory is by sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with unbelievers. Every time someone comes to faith and says, I believe in God and I'm trusting Jesus as my Lord and Savior, God gets the glory, right? It's all a work of his. I brought nothing to the table. You brought nothing to the table. It was all a work of God. And so he gets all the credit. So one of the ways you open the door in order to share the gospel with people is by sharing your life stories, right? The lessons that you've learned through your walk with God about relationships and problems and temptations and all kinds of aspects of life. You know, you can say, this is what God taught me about failure. This is what God taught me about a lack of money. This is what God taught me about pain and sorrow and depression. This is what God taught me about waiting and illness and disappointment. This is what God taught me about family and church and relationships and critics and how to handle that and 
Yeah, and there's just so many ways that we can do that. And one of the tremendous opportunities we have here at Christmas is that we have opportunity to show the love of Christ to our community, invite them to a service where we will love on them and share the good news of Jesus Christ. So the series that I'm doing for Christmas is we're going to look at Christmas through the eyes of Mary, through the eyes of Joseph, and through the eyes of Jesus on Christmas Eve. Because what they see and what we see and perceive are two different things. What they saw, what they heard, what they experienced, oftentimes we never let that intersect with our lives. So this is a beautiful, beautiful story. It's a beautiful time of the year in which people are open to an invitation. So might I encourage you to love somebody enough to hand them a card, put a door hanger on their door, put up a poster, put out the you know advertisement, word of mouth, whatever it is. So here's the last thing is in your bulletin, I gave you honoring God through our church. This is the vision, the dream that God has given our church by 2024. You know, our, our vision statement is about real relationships reaching, a real love for Christ, relationship with others, reaching our community and world. Our mission statement is that we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we're, we're in the process of um, putting together a pamphlet that clearly spells that next step process out. And here's where we're headed. And you can read all that. I'm not going to look at all that. So, but one of those things is like 400 people here on, on an average Sunday in attendance. Why is that important? Because numbers represent people. People represent, these, these are the people outside the kingdom, right? These are people without Jesus. We want to take Jesus to those who are outside the kingdom so that God opens up their heart and pulls the scales from their eyes to see the truth and the need for Jesus in their life because God also has a plan for their life, and his plan is wonderful, and it's beautiful, and he wants them to experience it to the fullest, but it has to come through his son, Jesus Christ. That's why we do what we do. That's why we exist. It's not just to have fellowship, although fellowship is vitally important with one another, but it is to take the gospel outside the walls, into the hearts and lives of people who are desperately in need to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads together. Father, you, you, you're so gracious and kind, and 